Um, man, this is, I was sitting there singing that song thinking uh, just, uh, I don't know, I've had this heaviness about me for a while uh, in the world, just all the junk going on. And then I like, was telling my, my brother was visiting this weekend, I was like, I really get the whole midlife crisis thing. I like, I get where that comes from. I got two parents who are in their upper 80s who are really struggling health-wise and a son in college and my second son, Campbell, in his senior year. So it's like, you know, everything's, you're going, oh, wow, this is but a breath, um, an important breath. But nonetheless, it goes by really quick. So it just it just those feelings uh, have been hitting me a lot. So um, as I've been preparing, I've, I do a lot of writing for See Jesus, uh, writing some student ministry studies and stuff. And so uh, this was one I've been working on the past few weeks, and um, one we did in Guatemala with our with our interns and. Um, so I just wanted to dive into this and really uh, not necessarily tack it, tackle it from a theological perspective, but from an incarnational um, person of Jesus' perspective, uh, which I think gives us a, a unique look at things. So let me, uh, let me pray for our time together before we start. Uh, Holy Spirit, uh, we know that you always come alongside your word. You bring wisdom, correction rebuke, training, and righteousness. And so we submit ourselves to you this morning. And Lord Jesus, we ask that, um, I really do ask that none of us would leave here uh, the same. I pray that we would have a different perspective on the world's wisdom versus your wisdom. A different um, thought perhaps about who is this person named Jesus uh, that we keep encountering. Um, so I just pray, uh, Holy Spirit, you work those things in our hearts. In Jesus' name, amen. Uh, so we're going to be looking at uh, Mark chapter 10 uh, on the rich young man. And um, so as we start this, I just wanted to, just wanted to uh, give you a couple thoughts. Um, what if you encountered a person that came up to you and you were in conversation with them and they said, you lack one thing. Or they said, you don't see or you don't hear, you don't understand. Perhaps they even say you're foolish. Maybe they even say you're greedy. Uh, you've invited the wrong people to your own party. Maybe they would say, uh, you're a dog. Your faith is small. You still don't get it. You just want other people to notice you. What would we say about a person who says all those things? Like if you're ever reading through the Gospels and you encounter Jesus in a real way, you have to conclude sometimes this guy is just rude. Like, nobody does the things the way Jesus does. Nobody says, you don't see, you don't understand, you don't hear. We might say those to our kids, but we don't say them outside of the home, really. 
Jesus has this amazing way about him in his honesty. And we often describe it as blunt, rude. We might say he's honest. We might say, man, Jesus is one of those northerners uh, that's come down and he's really honest. They're much better at honesty than us southerners. We write ours as a passive-aggressive honesty. Um, so, yeah, just thinking about these things, uh, these are all things that Jesus of Nazareth said. So what do we make of the honesty of Jesus? Why is it surprising to us that Jesus says these words? Because we like for Jesus to fit in this nice, neat box. He's too nice to say these things. Or maybe uh, you do have a negative response to Jesus when he says those things, like uh, when he says to a woman, you're a dog. You're like, man, Jesus, lighten up. Like you're being kind of rude here. Maybe we would say in an honest response, uh, Jesus is kind of a jerk sometimes, it seems like. So I want us to really wrestle with something this morning, and, it, and it's something that um, has hit me a lot lately. Uh, do I need to back up a little bit? I may have scooted my, I cheated too much. Um, getting too in front of those things, that's good. Okay. Uh, one, one thing we've really wrestled with uh, in our culture is you hear this phrase over and over again about truth, like go find your own truth. Uh, truth is what's within you. Uh, to find truth, you must be uh, like to really hold on and live your truth. You've got to be authentic to yourself. All those kind of things we hear in our culture. And sometimes I'm like, man, is that really true? Do people really believe that? So I Googled it. And uh, I Googled a TED Talk on finding your truth. I was just curious. And I listened to one, and this is what it said. Uh, see if you can hang with me on this. The lady who was presenting this particular TED Talk said, uh, there's some truths in here, but also some not truths. So truth, how do you define who you are, who you want to be, the impact that you want to have on the world? And why is it so important? It's important to understand your truth because to live a fulfilled life, to maximize your potential, to make the impact that only you can make with your singular design DNA, you need to know who you are so that the choices in your life's journey resonate with what's inside. So what is the truth? What's your truth? How do you find it? How do you live it? So how do you find your truth? She continues. Our truth is found by collecting all of life's little treasures and putting them all together till one day a picture forms before us and we can grasp the definitive description of who we are. Last line, living your truth is about remaining authentic to yourself. Am I doing what resonates with my truth? Often, as followers of Jesus, we can kind of mockingly laugh at those statements and say, yeah, that's what the culture believes because they don't have an absolute truth. We have an absolute truth. But I find it really interesting, Jesus' reaction to the rich young man. 
who really is operating in his own truth. What do you think about those ideas of truth? So let's, let's look at the way Jesus handles a man, a rich young man, who's operating in his own truth, his truth. He's trying to be authentic to himself and the way that he's doing life. If that's what the culture says, that's the way you find truth. Let's see how Jesus interacts with a man who has found his truth and is living it out, and he encounters Jesus. All right? So, that's a long introduction, but I promise I'm going to stay within the time. So, let's stand for God's word in Mark chapter 10. We're going to read 17 through 23. And he, uh, this is Jesus' uh, encounter. He's kind of been with his disciples, and all of a sudden he encounters this rich young man. Starting verse 17. And as he was setting out on his journey, a man ran up and knelt down before him and asked, Good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus said to him, Why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. You know the commandments. Do not murder do not commit adultery, do not steal, do not bear false witness, do not defraud, honor your father and mother. And he said to him, teacher, all these I have kept for my youth. And Jesus, looking at him, loved him and said to him, you lack one thing. Go sell all that you have and give to the poor and you are a treasure in heaven and come follow me. Disheartened. By the saying, he went away sorrowful, for he had great possessions. And Jesus looked around and said to his disciples, how difficult it will be for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God. This is the word of the Lord. Amen. You may be seated. So with, that, with the background of that and just thinking about the truths that are there, so think about this man. He comes up to Jesus. What do we know about this man? What can you tell in the text about this man? Look, look at the physical posture with which he comes. He's setting out on it. Jesus is setting out on a journey. Now, a man runs up to him. You can almost picture it. Imagine it in your head. He's running up to him, and he kneels down. He's kind of still out of breath. And he asks teacher the greatest question you could ever ask Jesus. How do you inherit eternal life? I mean, what a question. But what does it reveal to us as we incarnate with this man? What does it reveal to us about him? What do we know about this man from the passage? We know he's kind of respectful. He kneels before Jesus. He compliments Jesus and calls him good teacher. He's seeking. He's still looking for answers. He, he goes straight to the point and he asks the most important question you could ask. He's kind of would be labeled in our days probably an achiever, right? He's got a lot of wealth. He's got a lot of status. But he's uncertain about this one thing, and his conscience is kind of bothering him. And lastly, we know that he's, that he's wealthy because he had great possessions. So what truth has this man discovered for himself? Are y'all tracking me with me on this? Every, everyone in our culture right now, and I say our culture because it's part of us, we've created the culture that we live in, we're part of it. Our culture is saying, 
you discover your own truth and live by that truth to be authentic to yourself. Authenticity is that all, right? It's, that's what it's all about right now. Being authentic to yourself, whether it's truth about sexual orientation, truth about whether or not Helen Keller was actually real, uh, truth about whether we actually went to the moon. Uh, believe me, they're all, they're all out there as are these really truths. So what do we do with this man who's discovered his truth and he's living by it? His truth is money equals life. Possessions equal life. Materialism equals life. Good deeds equal life. Was he being authentic to himself? in his pursuit of this. Absolutely, in his own head, he was, in his own mind, he was being authentic to himself. He really was living by what he perceived to be the right truth. Was he right? No. And we say, we can say no because we have kind of this, right, we're the church, right? We can say, no, he didn't have it right because he went to Jesus. But look, how does he actually reveal to us that he didn't think he had it right? He goes to Jesus, and he's going and asking a question. There's something missing in this person's life. No matter what his authentic truth is that he's running after, and it's guiding his principles in his life and why he does what he does, there's one central thing that's missing, and he wants to find out what that was. So he goes to the truth teller. Where do you think, uh, before we go to the truth teller, what do, where do you think this rich man might have learned his truth? So if all of us in this culture we're swimming in are learning these truths and our kids are learning truths to live by, this is the current they swim in. No matter how much we try to protect and get, it's just, it's in our culture. It's in our sh the stream. Where do you think this man learned this? That money equals life. He may have learned it from his friends, from his family. Maybe it was upbringing. Maybe he's a trust fund child. You know, we don't really know where he got his wealth. But it is the, it is the thing that he has said to himself, this is what it looks like to live out my truth. And of all the places he could have gone for truth, he goes to Jesus, this man who's known for wisdom. And he calls him, the first thing out of the chute, he calls him good teacher. And this is really strange reaction of Jesus. I'm like, Jesus, like you are the good teacher. Why? He could have said great teacher. He could have said amazing teacher. He's the, Jesus is the greatest uh, like just strictly teaching, lining him up with all the greatest teachers in the history of the world, he was the greatest. He's amazing. So why did Jesus rebuke the man's good teacher comment? There's a couple, couple ideas behind this, but in the first century, no one addressed a rabbi with that descriptive adjective. They didn't usually put any descriptive adjective in front of rabbi or teacher. It was just part of the historical custom that they did not do that. But notice how Jesus handles the compliment. 
right? He's got a, gotten a compliment, good teacher. And I think there's something going on in the sense of this man, he's saying, if you knew who you were talking to, if you knew that I was the son of the most high God, I might let you get by with saying good teacher, but you're addressing me as one of the moral teachers just like the rest of the guys, so I'm not going to accept that compliment in that way. That could be one option. Don't know for sure. The other option is um, that Jesus is always deflecting glory away from himself. He's always hungry to give glory and shine the spotlight on his father. He wants he wants his father to always have the glory, even when he give, receives compliments, right? What if you receive a compliment? What does it look like to follow Jesus in this? It looks like to give the father glory for the compliments that you receive. So it's interesting that Jesus is very childlike. He's very dependent. And even in the, even in the mundane, seemingly insignificant things like good teacher, he yields to his father that my father is the only one that's good. So it's, uh, let's continue just to, in the story just to see how the truth teller Jesus responds to this man. So he says, uh, why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. And then he goes into, you know the commandments. Do not murder, do not commit adultery, do not steal, do not bear false witness, do not defraud or honor your father and mother. And he said to him, teacher, all these I've kept from my age. And then he goes through that. So there's, there's this hard question that we have to ask in this. What is, what is Jesus exposing when he gives this, really the second table of the Ten Commandments, these ones of love your neighbor commandments? What's he beginning to do here? He's really beginning to deconstruct the man's version of truth. He's starting to break down what he has built his pillars on in his life, right? If, he's, if the rich young man is giving the TED Talk, he's giving the TED Talk saying, this is what truth looks like. It looks like collecting all these things in your life and then being authentic to yourself and living those out. And Jesus is saying, actually, let me deconstruct what your version of the truth is and let me give you a, better, a more clear pathway. And the one way he's getting at that, he starts with these really basic things of you think you've actually kept the commandments on the surface, but really in the, de in the depths of who you are, Jesus is, is trying to get at the man's, he's trying to bring conviction to the man's heart. And the man doesn't respond to those with conviction. But the deconstruction of his version of the truth, he says, teacher, I've, all these I've kept since I was a boy. Is he being honest with himself? Absolutely. Is he being authentic? Absolutely. He's being authentic and true to his version of the truth. But he probably thought he'd really kept all those. We would think of that, man, go, man, that's confident, arrogant, prideful. We could list a bunch of things and really nail this rich young man to the ground. But notice, what is, what is often our reaction? I want to really drill down 
maybe too personally here. I'm not going to ask what, just to answer this in your own heart. When I started reading the, the TED Talk thing about finding your truth, was there a little bit of cynicism in your heart? Or a little bit of like, yeah, the world, they're just, they're just always running after those things. Or maybe you've dealt with that. Maybe you have a prodigal in your life who's run away from the church and run away from God's word. And there's like bitterness and anger that stirs up in you when you hear these things. I don't sense it um, all the time, but I do wonder if one of the reasons many people have left the church in our world today is because oftentimes the reaction of the church when people are exploring and asking these questions about authentic truth and all the, all the other crazy things we've seen, and oftentimes the reaction of the church has just been anger. We just, we just get angry at our culture. We like hate the way they do things. We get really mad at it. We, um, and maybe I'm drilling down. I might get in trouble for this. Jimmy might never ask me to preach again. <laughs> there, is a, there is a culture of evil in our world that we are combating, but we cannot combat that by bolstering ourselves behind a political leader. We cannot combat that by embracing views of Fox News or CNN. That's not the church. Let me tell you a quick, a quick detour of where I've been praying and a little bit nervous about the trajectory of the American church. I have a friend who's in Northern Ireland. Uh, if you know anything about Northern Ireland, there's a, an orange and a green party in Northern Ireland. Uh, the orange party is the staunchly conservative party. The green party is, and they're divided uh, not only politically, uh, but they're divided uh, by Catholics uh, and Protestants. And so my friend was a, a, a pastor in a church there, and uh, he was in a town that was heavily influenced by the Orange Party, which was the strong conservative party, the Protestant party of Northern Ireland. And as he started to cast vision for this church and, and wanted them to go share the gospel and he was asking and pushing the church to go share the gospel with their Catholic friends. Well, their Catholic friends are part of the Green Party. They're not part of the Orange Party. So my friend, who's a pastor, actually got kicked out of his church and out of his denomination because he was promoting evangelism to the Catholics who didn't believe in the work of Christ and he wanted to go evangelize his neighborhood, but because the Orange Party was so conservative and strong, 
the power of that political party got him booted out of his church. And I just say all that. I'm not, I, I really loathe politics for the most part of my life and avoid it as much as possible. But could it be if the church keeps attaching itself to political ideals that we end up like Northern Ireland? And I say all that to learn from Jesus. Look at verse 21. The familiar pattern of Jesus. And Jesus, looking at him, he sees people. He doesn't see ideals. He doesn't see political agendas. He doesn't even see the man in the sense of seeing. He's not so laser-focused on this man's authentic truth, the truth that he is living by, that he misses the man, he actually sees the man with his eyes as an individual, as an image bearer of the God who made him. Looking at him, and he loved him. And he said to him, you lack one thing. This is what the church should look like. Love is at the center of the universe. It's the primary characteristic of our God. After John the Apostle has encountered the living Christ and lived for 60 to 70 years, he is writing his epistle and the one overarching characteristic he can't get out of his head after encountering Jesus and knowing who God is, he's trying to sum it up. Who is God? Who is God? What am I going to write down? What am I going to put in the Holy Scriptures when I write this down? What's the Spirit telling me to write? John says, God is love. God is love. It's to be the primary characteristic of the church. Here is perhaps a rich, arrogant jerk that's an overachiever, that's a type A personality, that's in your face, the kind of person that I would probably not want to have a conversation with and probably run the other way with. And what does Jesus do? He looks at him and he loves him. How do we know that he loved him? Seems like a weird question, right? How do we know that Jesus loved him? Because Jesus didn't wave a flag and go, hey, Peter, when you tell Mark this story so he can write it down later, I want you to tell him that I loved him. Jesus didn't wave the banner or say, hey, guys, watch this. I'm getting ready to love the rich young ruler. No, this is Peter's account who goes and tells Mark later, you're not going to believe what happened. And oh, by the way, side note, you can research this on your own. There are some scholars who believe that the rich young ruler was actually Mark, which kind of blows your head up, but we don't know if that's true or not. Um, but if Peter is conveying this to Mark to write down, or if Mark is encountering this, why would he write Jesus loved him? What are the attributes, the characteristics, the mannerisms of Jesus in this moment with this rich young ruler that would be summarized in the words, Jesus loved him. I think it probably is the manner that the softness of his eyes. I think it's the manner of his speech. 
It's probably the physical way his body was interacting with this man. And it most certainly is also Jesus' honesty. It's the truth-telling that Jesus does that Peter also says he loved him. Because we don't view sometimes honesty as a gift of love. Honesty is often in our culture not viewed that way, and it's not often viewed that way by us in the church. Isn't it beautiful to think that perhaps when the Apostle Paul is writing 1 Corinthians 13, that in this moment, Jesus displayed the attributes of love. Love is patient and kind. Love does not envy or boast. Love is not arrogant or rude. Love does not insist on his own way. Love is not irritable or resentful. Love does not rejoice at wrongdoing. He saw this man in his wrongdoing. Jesus but rejoices with the truth. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Let me go back and read that one more time. And I'm going to substitute the word love for Jesus. Jesus is patient and kind. Jesus does not envy or boast. Jesus is not arrogant or rude. Jesus does not insist on his own way. And you might be going, oh, wait, that's why you don't put Jesus in there? But notice what happens at the end of this. He allows the man to go away sad. Jesus is not irritable or resentful. Jesus does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but Jesus rejoices with the, with the truth. Jesus bears all things. Jesus believes all things. Jesus hopes all things. Jesus endures all things. Isn't it beautiful to think that because Jesus loved him, he was able to be really clearly honest with him. And he says, one thing you lack. Man, is he a great teacher. I mean, think about it, guys. Who's he talking to? He's talking to... I'm going to screw up their names. Who's the guy who owns Amazon? What's his name? Jeff Bezos. He's talking to Jeff Bezos, Bill Gates, Elon Musk, whatever his name. You know, any, just pick the most wealthy guy you can think of. And you have a conversation with him and you go, one thing you lack. I mean, you don't say that to people who have extreme wealth. Because they have everything, right? Why does Jesus say the one, one thing you lack? I mean, this is very bold of Jesus' honesty to tell a rich man you lack something. It's just astounding to me. Go sell everything you have and give to the poor. and You have treasure in heaven, then come follow me. What right does Jesus have to say these things? Right? We could be in our culture swimming in this authentic self. This is my truth. This is my sexuality. This is the way I've defined what life looks like. And someone is going to point out to us and go, how dare you, follower of Jesus, tell me what you think is right? How does Jesus handle the situation? 
What right does Jesus have to tell us what truth is? Right? He is the ultimate truth teller. But it is the big question. You know, when, when all truth is, each individual does what is right in his own eyes, we're living the days of judges again. What right does Jesus have? Jesus is the authority of reality in the abundance of life. And here's the beauty of the way Jesus loves him is that he loves him so much that he's not willing to let this man stay in his lie. He's not willing to let the man stay in his version of authentic truth. But how does he go about doing it? He loves him. He cares for him. He's honest with him. And then he trusts the spirit with him. Jesus is not like hammer, hammer, hammer. He's soft, gentle, kind, tells the truth, and trusts the Spirit. It's a really beautiful testimony for the church. It's a really beautiful testimony of how we should love others who are living out their, what they believe to be their truth. They really do. But we have to carefully deconstruct that and lovingly help them reconstruct it in the manner that we communicate with them. So this, if you compared the two truths, Jesus' truth and the rich young man's truth, the rich young man's truth says, or Jesus says, one thing you lack Rich young man comes back with his truth and says, but I have all I want. Jesus' truth says, go sell everything. The rich young man says, but I have a lot of possessions that I really like. Jesus says, give to the poor. The rich young man perhaps said, I've given some to the poor. Jesus says, you will have treasure in heaven. The rich young man's truth says, but I have treasures on earth. Jesus' truth says, follow me. And the rich young man's truth that he's really living by, I want to follow myself. This man's rich by the world's standards. He has everything he needs. And Jesus comes to him and tells him he lacks one thing. And he challenges him in all these ways. He lays truth out for him. And he asks him to follow. Jesus loves him so much that he would tell him the truth and then trust the Spirit. Honesty is a gift of love. Do you believe that? Do you believe that when you receive it, like when somebody's honesty, honest with you? Let me give you a, just an example. It's like a father who catches his son looking at pornography. And he knows his son is playing with fire. So he lovingly warns him. Maybe he reads 1 Peter 2.11 that says, Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh which wage war against your soul. 
Your battle with pornography is a battle for your soul, the father says. You can't win the battle on your own. I'm not sure what to do, but I'm with you in the struggle. Let's find some help. It's because the father loves the son that he's compassionate towards him in the struggle. But it doesn't just stop there. It's also honesty that he gives him. Honest with his son that you're playing with fire and this is going to destroy your soul. It's waging war. But he's also honest with himself. He says, I'm not sure what to do. We're going to find some help. Life uh, in Jesus Christ is lived with this beautiful balance of compassion and honesty. We fall, some of us on the compassion end and some of us on the honesty end. And Jesus holds the two in perfect balance and says, this is what love looks like. Honesty is a gift of love from Jesus. The question is, how do we receive it? How do you receive honesty from others who are trying to do it in love? Maybe not perfectly in love, but they be, they're honest and like none of us really like criticism, so we react in different ways. But Jesus is really asking this man to die to something, to die to himself and to come to the reality of Jesus is saying, there's, you've got to abandon this authenticity, authenticity to self, to follow me. And here's the beauty of that is when we abandon authenticity to self, we're actually not giving up authenticity. We're actually embracing the most authentic person who has, who's ever walked the earth. Right? It's a cultural inroad for us. If authenticity is at its height right now, you can introduce the gospel to someone by saying, hey, can I tell you about the most authentic person who's ever lived? He, was nev he never exaggerated a story. He never over-embellished something. He was really humble. He was somebody that would really listen well, and he asked really great questions. This person named Jesus was the most authentic person you'd ever meet. And he has this thing about truth that is really compelling. Right, Jesus' pathway that he's calling this man to is an invitation, right? It's a gospel connection. He says, you lack one thing, sell everything, follow me, and you'll have eternal life, right? Sorry, the see Jesus J curve comes to mind. Starting at the, you make the letter J, sell everything, or you lack one thing is the beginning of the death. Sell everything, the death goes deeper. Follow me, which means you're no longer following your authentic self, which is the death. And then Jesus promises resurrection. And you have treasure in heaven. It's this beautiful gospel connection that Jesus really was the rich young ruler. Jesus was the one who had all the riches of heaven and he became poor, that you and I might become rich. I mean, it's a beautiful gospel story in the midst of this. Jesus, the rich young ruler, and he says, and we read it this morning, for you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, 
so that you through his poverty might become rich. So we're at the end of the story, this encounter with the rich young man, and he goes away sad. Any idea why he would go away sad? Why does he leave sorrowful and disheartened? And the Greek in here seems to indicate it's like um, a cloud moves over the sun is the kind of same kind of sense we get. It's bright and sunny, and then all of a sudden this dark cloud builds, and the man just walks away. His identity was wrapped up in his truth. And Jesus had deconstructed that truth. And the man, instead of taking the invitation to follow Jesus to find life, he refuses because it's just too costly for him. It's going to cost him too much to follow Jesus. So he would rather stick with his version of the truth and walk away sad. He probably wanted a quick answer, probably wanted a one shot, hey, do this, and then you'll have eternal life. And Jesus says, actually, I love you too much to let you stay in your version of the truth. So I have to tell you that your truth's not going to work. It's not going to bring you life. It's going to bring destruction. And Jesus offers him life. And the result is that he's sad because it's unraveled his entire identity of who he is as a person. So, what about you? How do you respond when you see other people's truths deconstructed? You're like, yes. Celebrate in a taunting way. Or how do you deal with truth in your own life when it's deconstructed? Whether it's by a friend, whether it's by the Spirit or by the Word, do you embrace it as, hey, this is God's way of calling me into an eternal life? Really, the final question to ask in this is, is what, do you, what do you end up doing if you were the one in the conversation with Jesus? And he looked at you and he loved you. And he said, give this away and follow me. What is the one thing in your life that would be really hard to give away to follow him? What's the one thing that would make you go away sad if Jesus said, that's the thing I want? Because he's pretty radical and has several disciples he calls, like, I want to go, like, say goodbye to my parents, leave. Brothers, sisters, he's like, I'm going to give you so much more. So what is it in your life? Let me close with this story. I was, uh, when I was doing youth ministry at First Pres downtown, and we had a ministry with Macaulay students. And I can't, uh, I'm not going to use the kid's name. We'll just call him Ryan. Um, 
Ryan was a border student. Uh, his parents owned a professional sports team. Ryan had everything he wanted. And everything he thought he needed, he had at his disposal. And I can remember I developed a relationship with him over a couple years and would share the gospel with him. We were sitting at Macaulay School watching a baseball game. We were kind of sitting on the grass hill down the third baseline and watching the, watching the game. And I was just talking to him and shared the gospel with him again. And there was something different this day. He just said really bluntly to me, Robert, I have everything I want and everything I need. I don't need Jesus. And I, you know, furthered the conversation with Ryan, who had everything at his disposal. And I, wa I walked away sad. Ryan walked away content in the truth that he had built for himself. And I'm still sad for him because I don't know where that ended up. Perhaps he's back in his home and God has changed him. I don't know. But what is it that you hold so tightly to that if we were all gone, you would be sad? Is there something you're holding on to even this morning? Pride, reputation, wealth, possessions, you name it, whatever it is in your heart. Maybe it's something as we go to the Lord's Supper this morning that you say, Lord, this is what I want to give away. That's what the Lord's Supper is about. It's about someone named Jesus who became poor that we might become rich and we have the treasures of heaven. But is there something you're holding on to too tightly now that you'd want to give up? And maybe that's what you do during our time together during the Lord's Supper you just spend that time confessing, Lord, I want to give this up. This is what I want to give to you because I've been holding on. I can sense that I'm holding on to it too tightly because when it starts to get ripped away, I get really anxious or sad or upset. What is that thing? Could be something really small. Could be something giant. But as we come to the Lord's Supper and think about what Jesus did that night, with the disciples, when he took the bread, he took the bread and he broke it. And he said, this is my body that is given for you. Take and eat in remembrance of me. And then he took the cup in the same manner and he said, this is the blood of the new covenant. It's shed for the remission of sins, for the forgiveness of your sins. Even those things you hold on to so tightly, Jesus says, I'm gracious and kind he looks at you and loves you. And he says, I've shed my blood and I've given my body so that those things you're holding on to won't be your treasure anymore. He loves you so much that he wouldn't let us stay in the things that we hold on to and these little precious things that we, we hold to in the world. And he came and the incarnate son came and delivered us from those things. This is how much he loves you, that he's not willing to let you stay there. 
And right now he's looking at you individually. And he sees you. And he loves you. And he says, would you come and lay all those things down and follow me? That's the invitation this morning. It's the invitation for those who are here who may not believe that if you say, no, I don't, I want to hold on to those possessions. I don't want to follow. And I pray the spirit would bring great conviction in your heart. And perhaps even you leave sad this morning. But if you're here and you've proclaimed that you want to be a follower of Jesus and you believe in Jesus and you want to follow him, he's still saying, there's some things you need to lay down. There's some things that I'm gentle and kind and gracious and I want to give you abundant life and treasures in heaven. Lay those things down and continue to follow me. Let me pray for us. Jesus, thank you for the supper. Thank you for not leaving us to ourselves. Thank you for, Lord, loving us with compassion, but also loving us with honesty. Your truth uh, pierces us at times and we want to run away from it, but we know that it's a loving gift. So Lord, thank you for this means that you've given us to strengthen us and to remind us that we need you. And to remind us that through you, we have all the treasures of heaven. So Lord Jesus, help us not to hold too tightly to the treasures of this earth. And may we give those things away so that we can inherit the treasures of heaven. Thank you, Jesus, that you love us so much to undo our wrong truth and to build back into us the realities of your truth. You are the way, the truth, and the life. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.